Right, if you would, take your Bibles, and we're going to turn open to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17, so 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you know, all those number books there are kind of together, so 1st Kings chapter 17, as we actually 18, as we continue through this book, our Sunday evening series. I've left the fun part of 1 Kings 18, I think, to Pastor Kevin next week. So we're going to take the, the first verses in this chapter, verses 1 through 16, 1 Kings chapter 18. And let's pray before we open the word this evening. Well, Father, we are thankful for this word. We pray that you would bring it to bear upon us, that we would learn from the life of Elijah, that we would see a man of faith and faithfulness as we discussed this morning, that it would come to bear upon our souls as we close out this Lord's Day. And may we give you the glory and praise even as we sit here. In Christ's name, amen. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 16. This is the holy and errant word of God. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go and tell your lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? How now, and now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. 
And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, we're going to see here three lives in these verses here this evening, and I want to discuss three things from these three lives. I want to look at faithful leadership, then I want to look at unfaithful leadership, and then finally quiet faithful service. So faithful leadership, unfaithful leadership, and then faithful quiet service. First, faithful leadership. Sometimes faithful leadership is quiet and patient, and sometimes faithful leadership is bold and busy. Both. Sometimes faithful leadership is quiet and patient, and sometimes it is bold and busy. We saw in chapter 17 that Elijah appeared like a comet kind of in the dark night sky. Israel has been steeped in darkness. It has been steeped in sin. It is um, worshiping false gods. It is ruled by a wicked king and a wicked queen. And out of nowhere comes Elijah as he is called by the Lord to preach the word of the Lord to these people and to pray for them. We see how evil the, the country has become, and it's exemplified through this wicked king and his wicked wife Jezebel, a name that will go down in history as one of the most wicked females in all of history. And Elijah is called in the midst of this darkness to preach and to pray for this nation. He's a prophet of God. And yet what is interesting is that he is sent to this widow Zarephath, as we've seen the past couple of weeks. He's called by God to preach and to pray to the nation of Israel, and yet God takes this prophet of God who has the word of God, and he sends him away from the nation of Israel. He sends him outside of Israel to this widow of Zarephath. And that's there that we see God work through him and do some pretty astounding miracles in that foreign pagan land in a foreign woman's home. Then we read these opening words of chapter 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. It's now, after this, this long sojourn in this foreign land, that now the word of the Lord has come to Elijah And God is calling Elijah back to the land of Israel to preach and to minister. After many days, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. This is quite the contrast. 
Chapter 17, verse 2, we saw this. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. And then when that brook dries up, he tells him to go to the land of Zarephath. There are times that God calls his people to be quiet and patient. And there are times that he calls them to be bold and busy. And both can be faithful. It requires trust in the Lord. To sit in Zarephath and know that your countrymen are starving physically, but even more so that they are starving spiritually, and yet to sit there quietly and wait, to be patient as Elijah was. He's a prophet of God. He knows the Word of God. He knows that the people of God are starving. And yet he waits. He waits in the land of Zarephath. Why? Because the Lord had directed him to do so. It's not easy to be quiet and patient. It's not easy. I think some might look at his sojourn in Zarephath and think Elijah is enjoying a nice vacation with this widow and her son in their home. They have overflowing flour and they have overflowing oil. But anyone that knows, someone that has a true heart for God and a true heart for God's people, you have to understand that a prophet having the word of God, being called by God, you have to understand that this had to be an agonizing time for him. He just has to wait. And he has to be quiet patient and he has to be quiet this was not a vacation for him especially when you think about elijah he is a man of zeal and he is a man of love he is a storm of a man passion runs through his blood and yet he remains he remains quiet and faithful patience not out of neglect but because he's waiting for the lord and that takes courage takes courage. We often fault people for being patient. And we say, that's not courage. No, this takes courage. You know, we look at later here in 1 Kings 18, that great event that you know well. Elijah is bold and busy there. That also takes courage. Or he stands up and he is toe-to-toe with the king and with all these false prophets of Baal, and he will call down fire from heaven. He is bold and busy, and that takes courage. But so does being quiet and patient. That takes courage. It won't be headline news and Israel Nation news or the Jewish Journal at the confrontation at Mount Carmel, but it takes courage to wait patiently for the Lord, especially when it's against your very nature as it is with Elijah. The prophet of God, he has the word of God. He's called to minister to God's people, but he also knows that he is a prophet of God. That's possessive. And he would say to us, I'm God's man. I do what God directs me to do.
circumstances are what matter and what God has asked for in the moment. I think it's easier in some ways, maybe not for all, for some, to think boldness and loudness, that, that's courage. I, I want you to also see, and, and we'll look at that, you'll see that next week, that that is courage. And there's some of us that need to be instructed and say, look, this boldness and this activity, that can be loving. That can be a picture of faithfulness. And some of us need to be encouraged along those ways. Others of us need to understand that, you know what, being patient and being quiet, that that can also be faithfulness, and we need to be encouraged that way. I want you to see that tonight because that's the emphasis of this text here, that patience can actually be a, a sign of maturity. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, we're told in Galatians. James says that in the midst of trials, we are to count them as joy. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience. When Paul writes to the Colossians telling them of his unceasing prayer for them, he says that he prays that they would be filled with, quote, the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Well, what does that look like, Paul? He then says that he prays that they will be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Power to walk in his way. What does that look like? For all endurance and patience with joy. When Paul is writing to Timothy, a commendation for, for Timothy seeking after Paul, seeing Paul as a model for faithfulness, he says to him, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience. That wouldn't exactly be what some of us would put in that kind of order. You have followed my teaching, yes, my conduct, yes, my aim in life, my faith, yes, and the very next thing is my patience. Patience takes courage. Now, it can be timidity. It can be fear of man. It can be a lack of resolve. It can be shirking responsibility. But patience, true patience, takes courage. Men of God who depends upon God can afford to be patient. Wait for the Lord. A man of God who knows he belongs to God can stand the accusation others hurl at him of being too patient. He's God's man or God's woman, and so he or she can wait quietly and patiently for God's direction. That takes courage. But notice that when God tells Elijah to go, he goes, and that also takes courage. To be bold and busy takes courage as well. There's no fear in this man, or at least he's got his fear under control. 
command has now come, go to Ahab. And so we're told in verse 2, so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. The, the word is coming back to Israel through this prophet as he returns back to the land. And he is going to speak boldly to this wicked, false king. Our second point, let us observe unfaithful leadership, unfaithful leadership, and it's exemplified in this wicked King Ahab. The author reminds us of how severe this drought has been, that Samaria even is facing this drought, that there is not water to drink, that there is not vegetation to eat. It has hit all of the surrounding area, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, because of God's judgment upon the nation of Israel for their wickedness. It has an effect upon all of the nations around them. And Ahab, this wicked king, he presents a great contrast both to Elijah and Obadiah who were about ready to see. And Ahab, he is absolutely loud in his wickedness. He has no sensitivity to God. He has no sensitivity to God's ways. He is a man that is controlled. He's a man that is dominated by his wicked wife. And she is working through him. And he is obeying her commands. A wife who we are told, quote, cut off the prophets of the Lord. She was seeking to kill them all. And they didn't get Elijah. And so Ahab, you see the extent of his wickedness as he is going to nation to nation around him to find have they harbored Elijah. And when they say, no, we haven't harbored Elijah, then he will say, swear an oath to me that you don't have Elijah within your boundaries. Elijah is a thorn in his side because the word of God is troubling to him. That's often so for wicked people. That word of God just continues to press in. And so he wants to silence it. He's a man that is unconcerned with God or the things of God, but he does have a concern. He has a concern for his livestock. His people are perishing. That doesn't matter to him. Vibrant religion is perishing in his realm. That doesn't matter to him. But his horses and his mules, now that matters to him. So he sends out his chief servant and himself, and they are going to search the land for places for his animals to graze and to drink and to eat. Animals matter, people don't. I have a neighbor, one of five of my neighbors that share my backyard and we share a fence in our backyard and this neighbor and this is probably 10 or so years ago my neighbor uh raises uh show dogs he has even taken his show dogs to westminster and shown them and his dogs are very important to him and it was probably 10 or so years ago we had family that were visiting and uh, I was walking into the house, and I could hear yelling from the backyard. And my nephews had decided to run up and down the fence with his show dogs. And so this man came out of his house like a bolt of lightning, and 
And he ran up to the fence with these six, seven, eight, nine-year-old kids and just lit into them. And I came out of my house and I called the boys up to the, the deck and then I walked to the fence and I said to my neighbor, I said, I respect your dogs in your yard. I expect you to respect people that are in my yard. He didn't talk to me for a couple of years after that by his choice. He started talking to me again once we got a dog. We had a dog in our backyard. He loves dogs. Not so much children, people. Ahab was a man concerned with animals. People are perishing, but that doesn't matter to him. People perishing, his own people perishing, doesn't matter. We're meant to see the hardness in this man. He's to be the shepherd of God's people, and yet he doesn't care for them at all. But he'll shepherd his horses, he'll shepherd his mules. You know, leaders among the people of God throughout the scriptures, they are often, we see this refrain over and over, that they are compared to shepherds. And that is often an illustration that is used for leaders, whether that is kings or whether that is priests or whether that is elders or whether that is pastors. They are often called shepherds in the scriptures. The word pastor actually is just an anglicized form of the French word or Latin word for shepherd. God uses people to minister to people, and leaders among the people of God are to see themselves as shepherds, as under-shepherds caring for the people of God. It's not a mistake that some of the great men in the Scriptures that were called to lead the people of God were shepherds first, that David was and that Moses was and that Jacob was. It was kind of hands-on training for what they were about to embark upon. Shepherds have three primary tasks, that is to know, to provide, and to protect. Jeremiah 3.15 often goes through my mind. This was a time when Israel's leaders were not good shepherds. They were not caring for the people of God. They were very much like Ahab and leading them into false worship and not caring for them. And God says this, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. They will know you. They'll provide for you. They'll protect you. It's those three things that are to mark shepherds. They are to know their sheep. They are to provide for their sheep. They are to protect their sheep. Shepherds are to know their sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Ahab knows nothing of his sheep. He could care less for his sheep. A good shepherd provides for his sheep, provides sustenance to keep them alive, provides leadership in the way that they should go, provides rest when they are in need. Ahab is not worried about feeding his people physically or spiritually. But he's very concerned about feeding his horses and his mules. He's not leading them, but in the way of deprivation. He's not caring for them. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still 
waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. That's good shepherd. Shepherd not only knows, he not only provides, but he protects. He protects his sheep from outward harm, predators, and inward harm, disease, and the attacks of other sheep. This is why he carries both a staff and a rod. The the staff symbolizes his authority and rule. And he uses that to redirect sheep. And then he has that rod, which was a crude weapon that was used to slam on the head of predators. He's to be a protector from external threat. And he's to be a peacekeeper when there's internal threat. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Ahab doesn't protect. He's no shepherd. At least he's no good shepherd, as Jesus speaks about in John 10. He's like the false shepherds that Jesus speaks of there, the Thieves that come only to steal and destroy the people of God. And the reason is because of what Jesus says there in John 10. One cannot be a good under-shepherd. One cannot be a true shepherd of God's people unless one enters the sheepfold through the door himself or through the gate himself. It is that to be a good under-shepherd, one must see themselves as a member of the sheep themselves, and that they need shepherding, that they have a real, vibrant relationship with the good shepherd themselves. And Ahab doesn't have this. He is not a good shepherd. He is very much a thief and a robber. His horses and his mules mean more to him than his people. And so we see him call Obadiah, this chief servant of his house, and he says to Obadiah, you go one way and I'll go the another way and we'll search the land and we'll see where we can find some water and where we can find some vegetation for these animals to feed. And that leads to our third point as we see our third person. Quiet, faithful service is some of the best service in the kingdom. Quiet, faithful service is some of the best service in the kingdom. We're told two things about Obadiah as we meet him. First, that he was over the household of Ahab. He very much is like Joseph in Potiphar's house. He is the chief of all the servants in Ahab's house. He lives in a wicked, evil home, but not just lives there, but he works there. And he doesn't just work there, but he leads this home. God's people can remain faithful even in the service of wicked people. It doesn't mean necessarily compromise. Obadiah was not a compromiser. He was faithful and stuck to his principles. How do I know this? Because of the second thing that we're told about him. We're told that now now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. 
Here's a man that is living in a wicked kingdom. He's living in a wicked home. He's working for a wicked king, and he is chief over this wicked king's home. And even in the presence of this wickedness, the summary for his life is he feared the Lord greatly. One can serve the Lord through quiet, faithful service. Obadiah lives a quiet, faithful life of service to his God, and he's commended for it. He doesn't have the personality or the gifting of Elijah. He isn't to be a mini Elijah. I guess as most of you in this room aren't going to be many Elijahs. He will never stand on Mount Carmel and call down fire, but he can stand in the midst of the fire of Ahab's house and he can be faithful in the midst of it. Here's a man who was faithful in what the Lord gave him to do in his circumstances, and that is all that the Lord asks of each of us. Be faithful where you are at with what I have placed you in, with the gifts and the abilities I've given you, and the life that you have. Be faithful where you are at. And he was. It's interesting to read commentaries and about this section of Scripture. There are many that want to throw Obadiah under the bus here and say, ah, this man is a compromiser, but he's far from it. He's not a compromiser. They say, look, when he finally comes into Elijah's presence and Elijah tells him to go back to Ahab and tell Ahab that he's found Elijah and that Elijah is coming, that he hesitates and he questions. And he does, he questions, what if Elijah is called by the Spirit of God to leave the area and go back to somewhere like Zarephath? He asks the question. And he knows that if that happens, then he will be put to death by Ahab. It is awfully easy to critique from the sidelines. It's awfully easy to critique from the cheap seats. But Obadiah is no coward. And the author of 1 Kings is trying to point that out to you and I. He doesn't want us to jump to that conclusion. That's why he sets up the entire summary before he even goes into the life of Obadiah and the scene by saying that this is a man who feared the Lord. And Obadiah will even repeat it as he's speaking to Elijah and say, I have feared the Lord since my childhood. This is a man to be emulated. I preached a sermon once when uh, uh, 15 years ago, and I remember in that sermon I was taking to task different Old Testament saints, different people in the Old Testament, and, and I was pointing out all of their failures. You know, I, I love the scriptures because they're very honest about all of the heroes of the faith. They're very honest that they're all sinners. Every man, every woman is a sinner. 
And they do that so that you and I know that our hope can't be in any of them. It can't be in Moses. It can't be in David. It can't be in Abraham. It can't be in Ruth. It can't be in Esther. So that you and I will look for the God-man to come. And so the scriptures are clear. They point out all of the different failings of these men and women, our heroes of the faith. But it's one thing to look at the failings of these men and women. It's quite another to consider them failures. I remember I got done preaching that sermon in my youthful zeal had let it loose, and an old man came up to me after the service. And he said, Pastor, I just want to remind you that these were servants of God, and you will see them in glory someday. It was a right rebuke. These are servants of God. Obadiah was God's servant, a man who feared the Lord. It's easy to critique from the cheap seats, but he was God's servant. What's the great evidence of Obadiah being faithful? Well, he has a place of privilege and he has a place of honor. He has a place of responsibility in the very house of this wicked king and queen. And yet when the order comes and goes out that all the prophets of God are to be killed, he doesn't participate. Not only does he not participate, but he takes a hundred of those prophets and he hides them in a cave, in multiple caves. And then he fed them with bread and water, and this must have come at great expense, but he knew that there, knew that there was an even greater expense that be, could be called upon him, and that could be his life if his employer and his king found And yet he did it because he was a man who feared God and he served his God. Quiet, faithful service is some of the best service in the kingdom. He's not loud like Elijah, but faithfully serving his God where he was at. And I want you just to think about what he did and the ramifications. You know, later, when Elijah here in chapter 18 is on Mount Carmel and, and he will complain, thinking that he is the only one that is left, the Lord will say, I, I've kept 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And to think of those 7,000 that are remaining, a hundred, a hundred who are prophets and will be leaders for these 7,000. Obadiah helped to save a hundred of the leaders that would be the leaders for a generation. It was quiet, faithful service. Did anybody know he was doing this? We don't know. Most likely not just serving where he was at with what he had. What's happening here, if Obadiah isn't shrinking, if he's 
kind of a coward here. What, what is he doing when he says to Elijah, Wait, I'm concerned that the Spirit might carry you somewhere else. And I think it's just a man who is rightfully assessing the situation and he's seeking to apply wisdom. Is this worth it to go to Ahab and tell him Elijah is on his way? He doesn't say that he's unwilling to do so. No, in fact, he will show himself very willing. What he's concerned about is going to Ahab and telling him and then the prophet disappearing. And this is not a wrong concern. He's a man who faithfully serves his God. And when he hears that, you know what, I promise I am going to be here, there's not a second question. He goes. So three quick applications. First, serve the Lord where you are at in faithfulness. Serve the Lord where you're at in faithfulness. Elijah was seeking to do so, Obadiah was seeking to do so. Two very different personalities with two very different giftings, two very different manners of doing so, and they are both serving their God faithfully. God has you precisely where he desires you to be. You have a field of labor that no one else has. We hear tonight from Ashley, that is her field of labor. It's her child, it's her husband, it's her workplace. None of the rest of you have that field of labor. She does. And you have your field of labor. Be faithful where you are at with what God has given you, where you are at. That's your task. Second, be slow to condemn others. You and I need to be very careful in how we judge others who are serving our Lord. We never know what people are doing, where they have been placed. A lot of faithful service happens quietly. I would even dare to say that most of the faithful service that happens in this world for the sake of the kingdom happens quietly. I've said this more times than I should have, but I often think about this and think it is those of you that are faithfully serving, that are praying and have this vibrant prayer life where you are lifting up this church and you are praying for others and you are praying for peace and you're praying for purity and you're praying for the lost. I think if there are rows in heaven, you will be much closer to the front than I am. There aren't rows in heaven, but you understand what I'm saying. It's just a faithful, quiet service there that doesn't get attention, that doesn't get commendation. It's just all to the glory of God. Be careful and slow to condemn others. They're not our servants, they're His. We never know quite what God is doing with them, where they are. I found myself over the years much slower to jump to conclusions about whether this person is being faithful or not. I encourage you to do the same. I'm afraid that many of us would be quick to condemn Joseph in Pharaoh's house. We've been quick to condemn Esther 
in the king's house who have been quick to condemn Obadiah in Ahab's house. But they were where the Lord would have them, and they each remained faithful where the Lord had them. And the Lord chose to use each of them for glory sins to the very salvation of his people. Patience with God and with one another is a good and it's a godly thing. Third, let us observe that when God says to go, we are to go. Elijah goes to Ahab. Obadiah goes to Ahab. Though their lives could be in jeopardy, it was worth going when they knew they were to go. Patience and quietness has its place, and there is courage in that, but there are also times that you're to be bold, and you're to be active, and you're to be loud when that's called for. And that also takes courage. We go as we're led. So finally, pray that the Lord will give you courage. Did you pray that? Pray that the Lord will give you courage. Courage to be patient and quiet when you're to be patient and quiet. And courage to be bold and active when you're to be bold and active. It's a good prayer to pray. Both require courage. When to display which is the trick, isn't it? That's the trick. And we often disagree on that. And that's when we need to be slow in condemning one another. We want the Lord to lead us, not loud voices, not the issues of the day, not fear, not what-if scenarios, but, but by conviction according to the word. Then we're safe, whether we're patient or whether we're bold, and we're doing what the Lord would have us to do. And that's what faithfulness looks like. And that's what's required of each of us. So let's pray that for ourselves and for one another. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us to be faithful in the current moment and in the moments to come, that we would be courageous, courageous enough to be patient and quiet when it's called for, and courageous enough to be bold and active when it's called for. We want to be faithful to you. Would you direct us? Would you guide us? as a church, as families, as individuals, as leaders. And may we faithfully labor where you have us for your glory and your praise. In Christ's holy name, amen.